7. Is a good deal of thinking to find out the real reasons, but they can be found, whether they relate to a fashion, to one of the laws of our country, or to the colors on a butterfly's wing. There is a little piece of verse intended to be comic, which, on the contrary, is really serious and philosophical. If you understand it, learn it by heart, and apply it to all kinds and conditions of things, and see if it does not help you to explain them to yourself. And man grew a thumb for that he had need of it, and developed capacities for prey. For the fastest men caught the most animals, and the fastest animals got away from the most men, whereby all the slow animals were eaten, and all the slow men starved to death. How the soil is made from the formation of vegetable mold, by Charles Darwin. Worms have played a more important part in the history of the world than most persons would at first suppose. In almost all humid countries they are extraordinarily numerous, and for their size possess great muscular power. In many parts of England a weight of more than 10 tons 10.516 kilograms of dry earth annually passes through their bodies and is brought to the surface on each acre of land, so that the whole superficial bed of vegetable mold passes through their bodies in the course of every few years. From the collapsing of the old burrows the mold is in constant though slow movement, and the particles composing it are thus rubbed together. By these means fresh surfaces are continually exposed to the action of the carbonic acid in the soil, and of the humus acids which appear to be still more efficient in the decomposition of rocks. The generation of the humus acids is probably hastened during the digestion of the many half-decayed leaves which worms consume. Thus the particles of earth, forming the superficial mold, are subjected to conditions eminently favorable for their decomposition and disintegration. Moreover, the particles of the softer rocks suffer some amount of mechanical trituration in the muscular vizards of worms, in which small stones serve as millstones. The finely levigated castings, when brought to the surface in a moist condition, flow during rainy weather down any moderate slope, and the smaller particles are washed far down even a gently inclined surface. Castings when dry often crumble into small pellets and these are apt to roll down any sloping surface, where the land is quite level and is covered with herbage, and where the climate is humid so that much dust cannot be blown away. It appears at first sight impossible that there should be any appreciable amount of subaerial denudation, but worm castings are blown, especially while moist and viscid, in one uniform direction by the prevalent winds which are accompanied by rain. By these several means the superficial mold is prevented from accumulating to a great thickness, and a thick bed of mold checks in many ways the disintegration of the underlying rocks and fragments of rock. The removal of worm castings by the above means leads to results which are far from insignificant. It has been shown that a layer of earth dot to of an inch in thickness, is in many places annually brought to the surface per acre, and if a small part of this amount flows, or rolls, or is washed, even for a short distance, down every inclined surface, or is repeatedly blown in one direction, a great effect will be produced in the course of ages. It was found by measurements and calculations that on a surface with a mean inclination of 9 degrees 26, 2.4 cubic inches of earth which had been ejected by worms crossed, in the course of a year, a horizontal line one yard in length, so that 240 cubic inches would cross a line 100 yards in length. This latter amount in a damp state would weigh 11 and one half pounds. Thus, a considerable weight of earth is continually moving down each side of every valley, and will in time reach its bed. Finally, the surf will be transported by the streams flowing in the valleys into the ocean, the great receptacle for all matter denuded from the land. It is known from the amount of sediment annually delivered into the sea by the Mississippi, 
that its enormous drainage area must on an average be lowered.00263 of an inch each year, and this would suffice in four and a half million years to lower the whole drainage area to the level of the seashore, so that if a small fraction of the layer of fine earth.2 of an inch in thickness, which is annually brought to the surface by worms, is carried away, a great result cannot fail to be produced within a period which no geologist considers extremely long. Illustration Section through one of the DRUIDICAL stones at Stonehenge, showing how much it had sunk into the ground. Scale. 1 to inch to a 1 foot. Archaeologists ought to be grateful to worms, as they protect and preserve for an indefinitely long period every object, not liable to decay, which is dropped on the surface of the land, by burying it beneath their castings. Thus, also, many elegant and curious tessellon pavements and other ancient remains have been preserved. Though no doubt the worms have in these cases been largely aided by earth washed and blown from the adjoining land, especially when cultivated. The old Tessilon pavements have, however, often suffered by having subsided unequally from being unequally undermined by the worms. Even old massive walls may be undermined and subside, and no building is in this respect safe, unless the foundations lie six or seven feet beneath the surface, at a depth at which worms cannot work. It is probable that many monoliths and some old walls have fallen down from having been undermined by worms. Worms prepare the ground in an excellent manner for the growth of fibrous rooted plants and for seedlings of all kinds. They periodically expose the mold to the air, and sift it so that no stones larger than the particles which they can swallow are left in it. They mingle the whole intimately together, like a gardener who prepares fine soil for his choicest plants. In the state it is well fitted to retain moisture and to absorb all soluble substances, as well as for the process of nitrification, the bones of dead animals, the harder parts of insects, the shells of land mollusks, leaves, twigs, etc. are before long all buried beneath the accumulated castings of worms, and are thus brought in a more or less decayed state within reach of the roots of plants. Worms likewise drag an infinite number of dead leaves and other parts of plants into their burrows partly for the sake of plugging them up and partly as food, the leaves which are dragged into the burrows as food, after being torn into the finest shreds, partially digested and saturated with the intestinal and urinary secretions, are commingled with much earth, the surf forms the dark colored, rich humus which almost everywhere covers the surface of the land with a fairly well defined layer or mantle, Von Hansen placed two worms in a vessel 18 inches in diameter, which was filled with sand, on which fallen leaves were strewed, and these were soon dragged into their burrows to a depth of three inches. After about six weeks an almost uniform layer of sand, a sandy dot four inch in thickness, was converted into humus by having passed through the elementary canals of these two worms. It is believed by some persons that worm burrows, which often penetrate the ground almost perpendicularly to a depth of five or six feet materially aid in its drainage, notwithstanding that the viscid castings piled over the mouths of the burrows prevent or check the rainwater directly entering them. They allow the air to penetrate deeply into the ground. They also greatly facilitate the downward passage of roots of moderate size, and these will be nourished by the humus with which the burrows are lined. Many seeds owe their germination to having been covered by castings, and others buried to a considerable depth beneath accumulated castings lie dormant until at some future time they are accidentally uncovered and germinate. Worms are poorly provided with sense organs, for they cannot be said to see. Although they can just distinguish between light and darkness, they are completely deaf, and have only a feeble power of smell, 
the sense of touch alone is well developed, they can, therefore, learn little about the outside world, and it is surprising that they should exhibit some skill in lining their burrows with their castings and with leaves, and in the case of some species in piling up their castings into tower-like constructions, but it is far more surprising that they should apparently exhibit some degree of intelligence instead of a mere blind, instinctive impulse, in their manner of plugging up the mouths of their burrows, they act in nearly the same manner as would a man, who had to close a cylindrical tube with different kinds of leaves, petioles, triangles of paper, etc. For they commonly see such objects by their point ends, but with thin objects a certain number are drawn in by their broader ends. They do not act in the same and varying manner in all cases, as do most of the lower animals, for instance. They do not drag in leaves by their footstalks, unless the basal part of the blade is as narrow as the apex or narrower than it, when we behold a wide, turf-covered expanse, we should remember that its smoothness, on which so much of its beauty depends, is mainly due to all the inequalities having been slowly leveled by worms, it is a marvelous reflection that the whole of the superficial mold over any such expanse has passed, and will again pass, every few years through the bodies of worms, the plow is one of the most ancient and most valuable of man's inventions, but long before he existed the land was in fact regularly ploughed, and, still continues to be thus ploughed by earthworms, it may be doubted whether there are many other animals which have played so important a part in the history of the world, as had these lowly organized creatures, some other animals, however, still more lowly organized, namely, corals, have done far more conspicuous work in having constructed innumerable reefs and islands in the great oceans, but these are almost confined to the tropical zones. Zoological Myths from Facts and Fictions of Zoology By Andrew Wilson When the country swain, loitering along some lane, comes to a standstill to contemplate, with awe and wonder, the spectacle of a mass of the familiar hair eels or hair worms wriggling about in a pool, he plods on his way firmly convinced that, as he has been taught to believe, he has just witnessed the results of the transformation of some horses' hairs into a living creatures. So familiar is this belief to people of professedly higher culture than the countrymen, that the transformation just alluded to has to all, save a few thinking persons and zoologists, become a matter of the most commonplace kind, when some quarrymen, engaged in splitting up the rocks, have succeeded in dislodging some huge mass of stone, there may sometimes be seen to hop from among the debris a lively toad or frog, which comes to be regarded by the excavators with feelings akin to those of superstitious wonder and amazement. The animal may or may not be captured, but the fact is duly chronicled in the local newspapers, and people wonder for a season over the phenomenon of a veritable Rip Van Winkle of a frog, which to all appearance, has lived for thousands of years in the solid rock. Nor do the hair worm and the frog stand alone in respect of their marvelous origin. Popular zoology is full of such marvels. We find unicorns, mermaids, and mermen, geese developed from the shellfish known as barnacles. We are told that crocodiles may weep, and that sirens can sing in short. There is nothing so wonderful to be told of animals that people will not believe the tale. Whilst, curiously enough, when they are told of veritable facts of animal life, heads begin to shake and doubts to be expressed, until the zoologist despairs of educating people into distinguishing fact from fiction, and truth from theories and insupported beliefs. The story told of the old lady, whose youthful acquaintance of seafaring habits entertained her with tales of the wonders he had seen, finds, after all, a close application in the world at large. The dame listened with delight, 
appreciation, and belief, to accounts of mountains of sugar and rivers of rum, and to tales of lands where gold and silver and precious stones were more than plentiful. But when the narrator descended to tell of fishes that were able to raise themselves out of the water in flight, the old lady's credulity began to fancy itself imposed upon, for she indignantly repressed what she considered the lad's tendency to exaggeration, saying, Sugar mountains maybe, and rivers of rum maybe, but fish that flee ne'er can be. Many popular beliefs concerning animals partake of the character of the old lady's opinions regarding the real and fabulous, and the circumstance tells powerfully in favor of the opinion that a knowledge of our surroundings in the world, and an intelligent conception of animal and plant life, should form part of the school training of every boy and girl, as the most effective antidote to superstitions and myths of every kind. The tracing of myths and fables is a very interesting task, and it may, therefore, form a curious study, if we endeavor to investigate very briefly a few of the popular and erroneous beliefs regarding lower animals. The belief regarding the origin of the hair worms is both widely spread and ancient. Shakespeare tells us that, much, is breeding which, like the coarser's hair, hath, yet but life, and not a serpent's poison. The hair worms certainly present the appearance of long, delicate black hairs, which move about with great activity amidst the mud of pools and ditches. These worms, in the early stages of their existence, inhabit the bodies of insects, and may be found coiled up within the grasshopper, which thus gives shelter to a guest exceeding many times the length of the body of its host. Sooner or later the hair worm, or Gordy's aquaticus as the naturalist terms it, leaves the body of the insect, and lays its eggs, fastened together in long strings, in water. From each egg a little creature armed with minute hooks is produced, and this young hair worm burrows its way into the body of some insect, there to repeat the history of its parent, such is the well-ascertained history of the hair worm, excluding entirely the popular belief in its origin. There certainly does exist in science a theory known as that of spontaneous generation, which, in ancient times, accounted for the production of insects and other animals by assuming that they were produced in some mysterious fashion out of lifeless matter. But not even the most ardent believer in the extreme modification of this theory which holds a place in modern scientific belief, would venture to maintain the production of a hair worm by the mysterious vivification of an inert substance such as a horse's hair. The expression, crocodile's tears, has passed into common use, and it therefore may be worthwhile noting the probable origin of this myth. Shakespeare, with that wide extent of knowledge which enabled him to draw similes from every department of human thought, says that, Gloucester's show beguiles him, as the mournful crocodile with sorrow snares relenting passengers. The poet thus indicates the belief that not only do crocodiles shed tears, but that sympathizing passengers, turning to commiserate the reptile's woes, are seized and destroyed by the treacherous creatures. That quaint and credulous old author the earliest writer of English prose Sir John Mandeville, in his, Voyage, or account of his, Travile, published about 1456 in which, by the way, there are to be found accounts of not a few wonderful things in the way of zoological curiosities tells us that in a certain, counter and be all yawned, then great plenty of crocodiles, that island a manner of a long serpent as I have southeasted before, he further remarks that, these serpents slew men, and devoured them, weeping, and he tells us, too, that, when they eat name of a move the over jaw upper jaw, and not another lower jaw, and they had no tonge tongue, Sir John thus states to popular beliefs of his time and of days prior to his age, namely, that crocodiles move their upper jaws, 
and that a tongue was absent in these animals. As regards the tears of the crocodile, no foundation of fact exists for the belief in such sympathetic exhibitions, but a highly probable explanation may be given of the manner in which such a belief originated. These rectals unquestionably emit very loud and singularly plaintive cries, compared by some travelers to the mournful howling of dogs. The earlier and credulous travelers would very naturally associate tears with these cries, and, once begun, the supposition would be readily propagated, for error and myth are ever plants of quick growth. The belief in the movement of the upper jaw rests on apparent basis of fact. The lower jaw is joined to the skull very far back on the latter, and the mouth opening thus comes to be singularly wide, whilst, when the mouth opens, the skull and upper jaw are apparently observed to move. This is not the case. However, the apparent movement arising from the manner in which the lower jaw and the skull are joined together, the belief in the absence of the tongue is even more readily explained. When the mouth is widely opened, no tongue is to be seen. This organ is not only present, but island moreover, of large size, if island however, firmly attached to the floor of the mouth, and is specially adapted, from its peculiar form and structure, to assist these animals in the capture and swallowing of their prey. One of the most curious fables regarding animals which can well be mentioned, is that respecting the so-called Bernicla, or Barnacle Geese, which by the naturalists and educated persons of the Middle Ages were believed to be produced by those little crustaceans named Barnacles. With the Barnacles, everyone must be familiar who has examined the floating driftwood of the sea beach, or who has seen ships docked in a seaport town. A Barnacle is simply a kind of crab enclosed in a triangular shell and attached by a fleshy stalk to fixed objects. If the barnacle is not familiar to readers, certain near relations of these animals must be well known, by sight at least, as amongst the most familiar denizens of our sea coast. These latter are the sea acorn, or balanee, whose little conical shells we crush by hundreds as we walk over the rocks at low water mark, whilst every wooden pile immersed in the sea becomes coated in a short time with a thick crust of the sea acorns. If we place one of these little animals, barnacle, or sea acorn the latter wanting the stock of the former in its native waters, we shall observe a beautiful little series of feathery plumes to a wave backward and forward, and ever and anon to be quickly withdrawn into the secure recesses of the shell. These organs are the modified feet of the animal, which not only serve for sweeping food particles into the mouth, but act also as breathing organs. We may, therefore, find it a curious study to inquire through what extraordinary transformation and confusion of ideas such an animal could be credited with giving origin to a veritable goose, and the investigation of the subject will also afford a singularly apt illustration of the ready manner in which the fable of one year or period becomes transmitted and transformed into the secure and firm belief of the next. We may begin our investigation by inquiring into some of the opinions which were entertained on this subject and ventilated by certain old writers between 1154 and 1189 Gerald Cambrensis, in a work entitled, Topographia Hibernae, written in Latin, remarks concerning, many birds which are called Bernicae, against nature, nature produces them in a most extraordinary way, they are like marsh geese, but somewhat smaller, they are produced from fir timber tossed along the sea, and are at first like dumb, afterward they hang down by their beaks, as if from a seaweed attached to the timber, surrounded by shells, in order to grow more freely. Geraldus is here evidently describing the barnacles themselves. He continues, having thus, in process of time, been clothed with a strong coat of feathers, they either fall into the water or fly freely away into the air. 
they derive their food and growth from the sap of the wood or the sea. By a secret and most wonderful process of alimentation, I have frequently, with my own eyes, seen more than a thousand of these small bodies of birds, hanging down on the seashore from one piece of timber, enclosed in shells, and already formed, here, again, our author is speaking of the barnacles themselves, with which he naturally confuses the geese, since he presumes the crustaceans are simply geese in an undeveloped state, he further informs his readers that, owing to their presumably marine origin, bishops and clergymen in some parts of Ireland do not scruple to dine off these birds at the time of fasting, because they are not flesh, nor born of flesh, although for certain other and theological reasons, not specially requiring to be discussed in the present instance, Geraldus disputes the legality of this practice of the Hibernian clerics. In the year 1527 appeared the History and Chronicles of Scotland, with the Cosmography and Descriptile on Teroff. Compilate be the noble clerk Maester Hector Beese, Chanon of Aberdeen. Beese's History was written in Latin, the title we have just quoted being that of the English version of the work 1540 which title further sets forth that Beese's work was translated lately in our vulgar and common language be Maester John Bellenden, Archdean of Murray, and imprinted in Edinburgh, be me Thomas Davidson, printer to the Kinjai's Nobile Grace. In this learned work the author discredits the popular ideas regarding the origin of the geese. Some men believes that for clockies geese crowies on trays be the nebis bills, botero pinon is vain, and because the nature and procreation of for clockies is strange, we have made no little labor and diligence to search ye Troy and Verite hereof. We have sailed sailed through ye says to hair for clockies are bred, and I thin be great experience, that the nature of the says is mere relevant cause of tear procreation and one offer thing, according to these. Then, the nature of the says form the chief element in the production of the geese, and our author proceeds to relate how all trays trees that are casing in the says be process of time apparatus first were need and were needed and in the small voice and hollows holes tear off growing small worms. Our offer no doubt here alludes to the ravages of the torito, or ship worm, which burrows into timber, and with which the barnacles themselves are thus confused. Then he continues, the wormies, first, shashol tear height and fit, and last of all the shatear plumies and wingeyes. Finally, the are coming to the just messer and quantite of days. The flay in the air as of her follies do as, as was notably provine. In the year of God and thousand I a hundred LXXXX, insect of Moni Pepil, is said the castel of Petslego, on the occasion referred to, Beast tells us that a great tree was cast on shore, and was divided, by order of the, laird of the ground, by means of a saw, wonderful to relate, the tree was found not merely to be riddled with a, multitude of wormies, throwing themselves out of the holes of the tree, but some of the, wormies, had, faith height, fit, and wind eyes, but, adds the author, they had no feathers feathers, and questionably, either, the scientific use of the imagination, had operated in this instance in inducing the observers to believe that in this tree, riddled by the ship worms and possibly having barnacles attached to it, they beheld young geese, or beasts had construed the appearances described as those representing the embryo stages of the barnacle geese, Beast further relates how a ship named the Christopher was brought to a leaf, and was broken down because her timbers had grown old and failing. In these timbers were beheld the same, were needed, appearances. All the hollows tear off, being, full of days. Beast again most emphatically rejects the idea that the, days, were produced from the wood of which the timbers were composed. 
and once more proclaims his belief that the nature of the says resolved in gaze may be accepted as the true and final explanation of their origin. A certain Maester Alexander Galloway had apparently strolled with the historian along the sea coast. The former giving his mean with Maesternus Piscines to search the dairy tail this obscure and misty doties, lifting up a piece of tangle. They beheld the seaweed to be hanging full of mussel shells from the root to the branches. Maester Galloway opened one of the mussel shells, and was Maristani's then afore to find no fish therein, but a perfectly shaped fill, small and gret, as corresponded to the quantity of the shell. And once again this draws the inference that the trees or wood on which the creatures are found have nothing to do with the origin of the birds, and that the fowls are begotten of the Oxyane Sea. Kuhilk, concludes our author, is the cause and production of Moni wonderful thin jives. More than fifty years after the publication of Bees's History, Old Gerard of London, the famous master in chirurgery of his day, gave an account of the barnacle goose and not only entered into minute particulars of its growth and origin, but illustrated its manner of production by means of the engraver's art of his day. Gerard's Herbal, published in 1597, thus contains, amongst much that is curious in medical lore, a very quaint piece of zoological history. He tells us that, in the north parts of Scotland, and the hands adjacent, called Orcades Orkneys, are found certain trees, whereon though grow certain shellfishes, of a white color tending to a russet, wherein are contained little living creatures, which shells in time of maturity do open, and out of them grow those little living fowls whom we call barnacles, in the north of England brant geese, and in Lancashire tree geese, but the other that do fall upon the land, perish, and come to nothing, thus much by the writings of others, and also from the mouths of people of those parts, which may, concludes Gerard, very well accord with truth, not content with hearsay evidence, However, Gerard relates what his eyes saw and hands touched. He describes how on the coasts of a certain small hand in Lancashire called Pile of Fitters, probably Peel Island, the wreckage of ships is cast up by the waves, along with the trunks and branches of old and rotten trees. On these wooden reject amended, a certain spume or froth grows. According to Gerard, the spume in time breatheth unto certain chills, in shape like those of the muscle, but sharper point, and of a whitish color. This description, it may be remarked, clearly applies to the barnacles themselves. Gerard then continues to point out how, when the shell is perfectly formed, it gapet open, and the first thing that appeareth is the forced lace or string, the substance described by Gerard as contained within the shell. Next come the legs of the bird hanging out, and as it groweth greater, it openeth the shell by degrees, till at length it is all come forth, and hangeth only by the bill, in short space after it cometh to full maturity and falleth into the sea, where it gathereth feathers, and groweth to a fill, bigger than a mallard, and lesser than a goose, having blacky legs and bill or beak, and feathers blacky and white, which the people of Lancashire call by no other name than a tree goose. Accompanying this description is the engraving of the barnacle tree figure one bearing its geese progeny, from the open shells into cases, the little geese are seen protruding, whilst several of the fully-fledged fowls are disporting themselves in the sea below. Gerard's concluding piece of information, with its exordium, must not be omitted. They spawn, says the wise apothecary, as it were, in March or April, the geese are found in May or June, and come to fullness of feathers in the month after, and thus howing, through God's assistance, discoursed somewhat at large of grasses, herbs, shrubs, trees, mosses, and certain excrescences of the earth.
with other things incident to the historic thereof, we conclude and end our present volume, with this wonder of England, for which God's name be your honored and praised. It is to be remarked that Gerard's description of the goose progeny of the barnacle tree exactly corresponds with the appearance of the bird known to ornithologists as the barnacle goose, and there can be no doubt that, skilled as was this author in the natural history lore of his day, there was no other feeling in his mind than that of firm belief in and pious wonder at the curious relations between the shells and their foul offspring. Gerard thus attributes the origin of the latter to the barnacles. He says nothing of the worm-eaten holes and burrows so frequently mentioned by bees, nor would he have agreed with the latter in crediting the nature of the oxyane with their production, save in so far as their barnacle parents lived and existed in the waters of the ocean. The last account of this curious fable which we may allude to in the present instance is that of Sir Robert Morey, who, in his work entitled A Relation Concerning Barnacles, published in the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society in 1677-78, gives a succinct account of these crustaceans and their bird progeny. Sir Robert is described as, lately one of His Majesty's Council for the Kingdom of Scotland, and we may therefore justly assume his account to represent that of a cultured, observant person of his day and generation. The account begins by remarking that the most ordinary trees found in the western islands of Scotland are fir and ash, being Continues Sir Robert, in the island of East Uist, I saw lying upon the shore a cut of a large fir tree of about two one two foot diameter, and nine or ten foot long, which had lain so long out of the water that it was very dry, and most of the shells that had formerly covered it, were worn or rubbed off, only on the parts that lay next the ground, there still hung multitudes of little shells, having within them little birds, perfectly shaped, supposed to be barnacles. Here again the description applies to the barnacles, the little birds, they are described as containing being of course the bodies of the shellfish. The shells, continues the narrator, hang at the tree by a neck, 